When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is really good to see you here today. I hope you're well. We have got an awesome episode today. We're speaking with Sharon Schneider. She is the author of the newly released Handbook for an Integrated Life, a practical guide to aligning your everyday choices with your internal compass. I was really excited to read this book because it's split up into really easy to digest categories, but more broadly two halves. One on the philosophy of aligning your everyday choices and your internal compass, and the second half more on practical tips, takeaways, things you can implement right away. We've talked previously about finances and ESG investing on the show, and I'm going to go ahead and link a really fabulous episode with Amanda Holman on ESG investing in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to that. And that's a great episode if you've like never dealt with the stock market before. It's a fabulous introduction. Today's conversation with Sharon does touch on ESG investing and investing as a whole, but we also talk about divesting, banking, philanthropy, common areas where we get tripped up when it comes to conscious consumption. It's a really fabulous conversation about your overall financial health and aligning that very closely with your values. I'm especially interested in your take on our conversation bit about mortgages, because that's something I've never talked about before on the show, because frankly, it's not something that I think about all that deeply when it comes to my environmental values, of course, but even more broadly, my conscious consumption. So we talk about a lot. It's a really great episode. I hope you really enjoy it. If you do, you can go ahead and let me know. All of my social links are in the show notes. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. My email is down there if you want to get in touch. And you can also make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you're listening, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you like to find your podcast, wherever you're listening to me today, just go ahead and double check. I bet you're already subscribed, but you know, it doesn't hurt to check and you can write and review while you're there. I also really welcome any conversation topics. We've had a lot of great requests recently on a deep dive for the Inflation Reduction Act, which I'm really excited to discuss with a guest very soon. So look out for that. And on the topic of finances, I've also gotten a surprising amount of inquiries recently around NFTs and crypto. And I'll go ahead and tell you guys, I really don't know all that much about it. So I am actively looking for an expert and I want to learn a little bit so we can have an educated, valuable conversation on that. So things to keep an eye out for. I always welcome suggestions. Again, all my links are down below. Let me tell you a little more about our guest today, Sharon Schneider. She's a social entrepreneur, an impact investor, a philanthropy expert, and a strategy consultant to the next generation of social impact businesses and family offices. She's the founder of Integrated Capital Strategies, where she specializes in setting up and working with hybrid organizations that use all the tools in their toolbox, grants, investments, advocacy, to manage businesses and household operations. Sharon served as executive director of the Telluray Foundation and was the founding director of the Walton Personal Philanthropy Group. She also co-founded and served as CEO for the for-profit social enterprise Moxie Jean, an online marketplace for high-quality, gently-used clothes. Sharon has an MA from the University of Pennsylvania and a BA from the University of Toledo. 
all around incredible perspectives and she does pull from a lot of these lifetime experiences and brings them into the conversation. We had a lot of fun talking about topics that I wouldn't normally classify as fun in that financial realm. It was warm, it was friendly, we laughed, we made some jokes. And it was overall a conversation that I took a lot away from, I learned a lot, and I found a lot of value in, and I'm sure you will too. With that, let's get into today's conversation with Sharon Schneider, author of Handbook for an Integrated Life, all about conscious consumption and aligning your everyday choices with your internal compass. Enjoy. Sharon, welcome to Eco Chic. I'm so excited you're here. Congratulations on the release of your book. How are you feeling? Oh my gosh. Super, super fun. It's been a great, what, three weeks. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Good, good. I was really excited when I read the title of your book because Handbook for an Integrated Life sounds like exactly what everyone is looking for. Like, I feel like it's not just a book <laughs> targeted for me, but you know exactly what you're getting when you pick up this book. And I really appreciate it. I mentioned to you before we started the way that the chapters were organized and just how digestible the information was, because I feel like, especially when you're talking about consumer choice, there is so much choice, quite literally now in the marketplace, it's so easy to get duped into things or not align your values with your choices. And this was the most straightforward way I've seen it written in a book. Oh, thank you. And I hope that's the case, that it's very practical and sort of, you know, takes you from a high level philosophy down to like really specific things you can do. And sometimes when you stay at the philosophy, it's hard to translate into your everyday life. But if you only stay at the everyday level, then if you get decision fatigue from trying to like make so many right choices without a guiding principle. So I tried to organize it to give you like guiding principles at the front. And then really specific ways to, you know, think about implementing them in the second half. Absolutely. I appreciated that. And I'm excited also for today's conversation, specifically looking at the chapter on finances and money, because I feel like that's perhaps the easiest way that I and my girlfriends seem to get tripped up these days. It's really easy to also feel like you have no idea what you're doing when you're investing or spending. And then when you get into the truth behind the environmental impacts of a lot of these decisions, it's really intimidating and easy to feel defeated. Mm -hmm. Before we start our deep conversation on the finances and the money and how to not feel so defeated, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you stepped into this space of conscious consumerism, especially given your background in impact investing in philanthropy. Yeah, I started in philanthropy working as a grant maker at, at a private foundation that was like a $12 billion foundation. That was their endowment. And the way foundations work is you give away 5% of your assets every year in the form of grants and the expenses to support that grant making. So what happened in you know the late 90s and early 2000s was people started to say, well, that's, you're doing wonderful things with that 5%, but what about the 95%? What is that doing? And when we started to look at it, you know, it turned out like a foundation might very well be, I think the, the Gates Foundation was like the big example. They were giving money to environmental causes and their endowment was invested in big oil. And, and when you look at that and you're like, it's 95 to five, it's 20 to one. And the 20 is beating the shit out of the one. <laughs> this is not working. And so the idea of, of only focusing on the five, you know, became kind of more popular, although, you know, it's still got a lot of way to go. There's still a lot of foundations 
who are, their endowment is invested in ways that are fully contrary to what they say they believe in. So it's not perfect, but, you know, honestly, it took me a lot of years. And then at some point I finally went, oh, oh I'm doing the same thing as those foundations, which is I may be giving, you know, 5% of my income to charity, but what's going on with the 95% in my life? And I thought it was too small. I didn't have enough assets to make a difference. But when I looked at my budget between my mortgage, my car payment, my credit cards, my checking and savings account, there are actually many, many tens of thousands of dollars that pass through the financial system. And we're not conscious of how we're interacting with the financial system and how it's either furthering our values or it's not. And so I kind of eventually started to look at my own 95%, if you will, um, the same way that my field had looked at the foundation's 95%. Yeah, I like all of the examples you just gave of the car payment, of the mortgage, of all of the checking and savings accounts, because we're hearing more and more, especially about banking in this day of ESG investing. So I'd love to just start off with that. What's the big secret with where you bank? Yeah. <laughs> well, the big secret that's not so secret is that if you're with a big national bank, what they're doing with your money when you're not using it is lending it to build oil pipelines. The latest projections are they have lent over $3.8 trillion for fossil fuel projects since the Paris Accords. So not like in the last 20 years, like since the Paris Accords. So every time you put a deposit in that bank, well, right now they're paying you a quarter of a percent in interest, right? But they're turning around and lending that money to projects that are multinational, you know, fossil fuel, other like environmentally destructive businesses. And so one of the things I eventually did, and, and it took me years because it was a complete pain in the ass, was I switched my accounts from like the big national bank to my local credit union. And so the thing what your credit union does is it provides all the same services, but it's owned by its own members. So it's usually based in a geographic community, like in Denver, right? I'm um, at Belco, or there's all kinds of different credit unions, but it can also be around an identity. So teachers or military service members, you know, there may be a credit union. And so the difference is they are using the assets that you keep on deposit to turn around and lend back to other members. So you can get your car loan, you can get your mortgage, you know, as well as have your, your money market, your checking, your savings at that credit union and know that those funds are, when you're not using them, are being used to support your local community or the community of, of the members. It's kind of a pain to switch banks. Like, I'm not going to lie. That's why it took me so long. It's one of the things that made me realize, and, and I formed one of the principles in the book was resist the allure of convenience. It's like if we want to really align our, our whole lives or more areas of our lives with our value, sometimes it's going to take a little extra effort. And we've been trained so strongly that convenience is the most important attribute that a product or a service can give to us. And of course, that's how we got here with Amazon Prime being the like primary example. But it's the same with like a national big bank. You know, I used to have this huge network of ATMs, right? And they were all free and they were everywhere. And now like, if I want to go get cash, which granted it's not nearly as so often, I have to go find the branch. And, and so there are a little bit of trade-offs, 
But like knowing what my money is being used for when I'm not using it is really worth it to me for that little bit of inconvenience. I think the note about convenience is really important because especially in a world where people are becoming more conscious of their environmental impact, it's so easy to fall into the trap of a greenwashed product. And very often, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And the same thing with banks, just like you mentioned, if it's so convenient to invest in your bank, if it's so easy to get from all of these ATMs across the city, they're probably doing something a little shady with your money. And very often we have this belief for whatever reason that our money is sitting in the bank. And it just simply is not that way. Your money is not like at a Wells Fargo in a shopping center being used for things. And once I came to that, I mean, I feel like I have to say it all the time and I have to tell people all the time because for whatever reason, we have this like very serious cognitive dissonance with how the corporate banking system is benefiting off of us without really paying us back for anything. Like you said, it's a quarter of a percent that you're really making in your savings account. That's right. And, you know, there's a big equity issue too. I mean, a lot of those big banks, again, because it's quote unquote safer, they lend to these multinational organizations. They lend to high credit score households. They lend to businesses that are cash flow positive. And so what if you're not already financially successful? Like where do you go for financial resources? So there's organizations called CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, whose mission is to support those under-resourced, underbanked communities. Access to capital is such a fundamental justice issue, you know, in society that, again, those kind of large national banks, they have a requirement. It's called the Community Reinvestment Act. They have to give some crumbs to those community-based organizations. But Credit unions, CDFIs, these are organizations that like their mission is to support the little guy. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like that's a good perspective. Something you touched on briefly that I'd love to backtrack into when it comes to borrowing from a bank was mortgages. And I'd love to talk a little bit about this environmental intersection that we have with mortgages, because that's an area that I almost never hear about. What are we thinking about in this space of lending for arguably the largest purchase that you're going to make? Yeah, that alone, like realizing that when you think about your investment dollars or you think about your consumer purchases, in reality, the biggest investment you'll probably ever own for for many of us is our home. And so you're sending, again, thousands every month certainly every year, to a financial institution to hold that mortgage. And so, you know, applying all those same criteria about who am I supporting with my interest payments, right? It's the same idea of I'm paying all this interest to who, but also credit unions often have better rates because they are not trying to maximize shareholder benefit. They have to run a successful business. Like it has to be financially viable, but it is for the members and by the members. And so the rates are often better than you're gonna find at a big commercial bank. So I think, again, it's really worth shopping local for your mortgage, just like you would for lots of other products. Yeah, that's a good perspective to put on it of shopping local for your mortgage, because I would never put it in those terms, but that's exactly what you're thinking about. And I shared this with you again before we started recording, but I had a girlfriend recently who was discussing her home buying process with me and discussing 
how she was thinking about what areas she wanted to buy in and thinking about this concept that this is your largest purchase. This is where you are voting with your dollars. And she was very against buying in a lower income area or an area where she could get, you know, quote unquote, a better deal on a house because she was like, this is how gentrification happens. And just because I want a better deal on a home doesn't mean that I should be taking advantage of these neighborhoods and these communities. And while that's not necessarily an environmental lens to put on your mortgage and your home buying process, thinking about all the equity and community issues that intersect with, again, the largest purchase that you will probably make is also a really helpful kind of gut check in a lot of these ways of how are you spending your dollars and are your dollars truly aligning with your values? Yeah. And, you know, gentrification is usually a combination of two things, which is, yes, people starting to pay more for houses than locals could afford to pay. And so outbidding them essentially, which is a huge problem where we are in Denver, where there's multiple investors and kind of cash buyers and the whole thing. So it's really, really hard to get in for the first time. And then the other half of that problem though is like the wages aren't keeping up with what it costs with the rising cost of living. And so you combine those two things, you squeeze people out from that side. So I think it's, it's always been challenging for me to think about I want to help them improve their neighborhood, make it safer, make it cleaner, make it, you know, friendlier to to small businesses, but I'm not trying to gentrify. So how do I, you know, walk that line? So I think being conscious of not driving up the price of, or being a Airbnb out and buying it to flip it or Airbnb it out is, is a bigger contributor than a person who wants to live there for sure. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Airbnb. That is a juicy topic. That's getting a lot <laughs> of heat online these days. And I never really thought about all the equity issues that Airbnb could be tied into, but they're making a lot of headlines for similar reasons, like you mentioned, for pushing folks out of neighborhoods, for driving up prices, and just creating this very false market for homes in a lot of cities. Quick break to tell you about Vegamore. From curling and straightening to hairspray to overbleaching, we've all done some damage to our hair over the years. I've talked before about how I love to put my hair in curlers, and yes, the higher the hair, the closer to God. I love feeling like a 90s supermodel with big, beautiful hair, but that means lots of heat, lots of pulling on that Velcro roller, lots of hairspray, and it just really shows over time. So if you're like me and struggle to have longer, thicker hair after years of damage, then you have to give Vegamore a try. I'll admit that I used to be someone who didn't think that much about my hair care, but you really have to start thinking about hair care the way you think about skincare. Your skin, similar to your hair, is a canvas. You want a really great foundation, and once you start investing in your hair and really thinking about high-quality products as opposed to those whatever kind of brands that we were all buying before, I'm telling you, you're going to see a difference. Vegamore has visibly transformed my hair. They have a holistic approach to hair health that uses smart botanicals that promote visibly thicker, fuller, longer looking hair. In fact, I saw someone recently that I hadn't seen in a while and she asked me, what'd you do to your hair? Did you get a cut? Did you get a blowout? And I said, no, dig this. I just changed my shampoo and conditioner. True story. I couldn't believe it happened. It was like a commercial on television. Vegamore really has something for everyone looking to improve their hair health. 
Their Grow Revitalize Shampoo and Conditioner Kit works together to create visibly thicker hair and improve hair from the roots. It's really simple. You just massage the shampoo into your scalp for 60 seconds, follow up with the conditioner, and it's really that easy. I like the way that the shampoo and conditioner smell from Vegamore, but again, I love that you can visibly see a difference in my hair health. My hair is shinier. It looks like it is repairing itself from damage. And again, it's healthy enough that someone actually gave me a compliment on the change in my hair, and I was able to say it really is the Vegamore Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner. With Vegamore, there's really no risk because you have a 90-day money-back guarantee. But with 91% of customers saying they saw visibly thicker hair with Vegamore in just three months, you won't want to run out. Don't let the damage of the past hold your hair back. See your hair's full potential with Vegamore. Go to vegamore.com slash eco chic to save 20% on your first order. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash eco chic code eco chic to save 20% at vegamore.com slash eco chic. It'll be in the show notes. On that topic of your largest home purchase, let's talk about those little tiny home purchases. What are the little things that you are filling your life with with that 95% of your spending going into what your values are aligned most closely with? Could we talk a little bit about day-to-day spending and how folks can think about grocery stores and clothing and spending their dollars locally? How do you see people perhaps making mistakes in aligning those values? Yeah. Well, the biggest mistake I see actually is that a lot of sustainability conversations and environmental you know, consciousness has focused on things like, oh, buy organic or buy fair trade. And I think actually that should be questioned, like the materials that something is made of should be like question number four <laughs> when you're thinking about a day-to-day purchase. Because question number one should actually be, and I call this my purchasing hierarchy, right? So question number one should be, do I need that thing? Like, do I actually need a thing? So if it's a sweater, if it's a new dress, you know, if it's like some more object for your house, do I, do I need a thing or is this like for entertainment? And usually the answer is no, I, I really don't need another thing. And so, boom, it doesn't matter what it's made of. No matter what it's made of, if you don't need it, it's not a, it's not a green purchase, right? <laughs> and so I kind of say that's question number one. And if the, if the answer is, yeah, I really do need it. Like my coat, you know, is ripped up and it's winter and I, I need a new coat. Okay. Then the question is, do you need to own it? This, whatever this is, could you borrow it? Could you rent it? So a great example of this is usually lawn equipment, right? Renting it from the um, hardware store because you're only going to use that spreader for one hour. Do you really got to buy buy something. And then if the answer is no, I can't run. I it's like, again, like a winter coat. I need it. I'm going to, you know, then the question is, can you get it gently used? Um, You know, if you need to own it and if you can't get it gently used, then say, okay, if I got to buy something new, let's look for organic, fair trade, all those good things that we think about. And then if the answer is still no, then I would say at least get something high quality so that it will last. And you can hopefully pass it on to the next person. So, you know, where I see is like people think they're doing something good by buying organic cotton clothes, but they're just buying too much stuff. Yeah, I think that is an interesting thing to start off with in your hierarchy of purchasing of do I need this? Because very often that's not a question that folks ask themselves. It is, I am going to an event and I need to wear something. And very often, I mean, I fall into this trap myself where I'll 
I mean, I haven't left the house, frankly, in over two years, right? To do anything special and nice. And I gave this example recently that I was going to like a bridal event for one of my girlfriends. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll just I'll pull something out of the closet. I have not worn like a floral brunch style dress in a long time and nothing fit nicely. So here I am in this pinch of like, who can I borrow from immediately? Or should I just go to the mall? And it happens to everyone. Even if you think you're a really conscious investor in your day-to-day purchases, if you're not giving yourself enough time to explore those other options, it's so easy to fall into a trap. Yeah. Which again is why convenience is our enemy, right? There we are again. (laughs) It's easy to be pulled in by what's easy to do. You know, we all have the best of intentions. And look, I will say also one of the principles that I talk about in the book is embrace yes and to keep making progress, which is to say, like, I'm not perfect today. I don't, I don't at all present myself as like being the master of the integrated life. I'm very much like on a journey and incrementally improving. So, um, you know, it's, I think it's important to the yes part is to celebrate the wins of like what we do now. So, you know, maybe you currently take your reusable bags to the grocery. Yes, that is wonderful. You should keep doing that. And it's a, it's a really good thing. And then the next thing, and this was my experience was I looked though in those bags and oops, there's all my produce in those little thin produce bags. Yeah. Right. And there's all those other things I'm buying and putting in in plastic. So there's still a lot of plastic in my cart. And so for me, the next step was to say, I'm going to get some of those mesh produce bags, you know, and reuse those as well as the like grocery bags themselves. And then it was, can I buy those loose apples and put them in my produce bags instead of a plastic thing of apples. And so it's like about making those incremental improvements along the way, rather than saying, oh, you suck because you're not perfect now. That's why I say yes. And so you celebrate what you have and keep looking for the next step, right? We don't celebrate and then go, I'm done here. (laughs) Good job. Yes. And yeah, I appreciate that perspective. And I always like hearing from someone who is an expert in the space saying, you know, I'm not the expert. I don't live a perfect life. Because there's never really a point where you're like a perfect environmentalist. There's no such thing. And the best way this was explained to me was during my deep uh, dive into the zero waste movement, like four or five years ago, if the, the girls with the mason jar trash jars, someone explained to me is that zero is not the goal. Zero is an asymptote. You will never reach zero in the zero waste movement. And that gave me so much peace of mind to say, I can continue to do my little things. And if every once in a while I create some trash, that's fine. And if every once in a while I have to go to the mall because I didn't plan ahead on borrowing something, like that's fine. I'm doing pretty well the other 95% of the time. Yeah. You know, I often say that I'm on a quest like to close the gap between who I aspire to be and who I am today. And you'll probably never truly close it all the way, but like just shrink it maybe just keep shrinking that gap because I think you're right it's like give yourself grace but but don't stop you know don't stop don't use it as an excuse I I was raised Catholic and there was a concept back in the day of the Catholic church of of indulgences right which is the idea that you had a sin that you committed and the theory was you did a good deed over here that like made up for it quote unquote made up for the the sin but for wealthy people, the good deed was giving money to the church. (laughs) 
So you gave money to the church to essentially buy forgiveness for your sin. But it was like saying you're making up for it over here. And, and, you know, it was really problematic because you didn't have to stop doing the thing. Like as long as you had money, you didn't have to stop doing the thing. And I feel like a lot of times we are asked to give people indulgences to say like, oh, well, I did this over here. This company is doing this bad thing over here. But look, they gave money to kids or to a charity or whatever. And so it's like, yes, thank you for giving that money to charity. Let's go talk about that bad thing, though. Like it's you can't buy forgiveness with good deeds over here. You still have to ultimately address the problematic behavior. That is an excellent, excellent (laughs) example. That's a really, really good example of this checks and balances internally that you need to have with yourself. And I'm glad that you touched on charity because that was a chapter that I was not expecting in your book. I'd love to talk a little bit about the perhaps environmental lens that you can put on charity donations or just more largely, what does it mean to participate in philanthropy in a way that really aligns closely with these values? Yeah, well, specifically from an environmental perspective, you know, once you get on a charity's mailing list, they're spending a lot of money literally mailing you stuff. And it's not just emails, at least, you know, I mean, I'm, I've donated to a lot of charities that continue to physically mail me things. And so I think regardless of what charities you pick, whether it's animals or, you know, women's issues or environmental causes, ask them not to mail you stuff, literally, like ask them not to mail, like take me off the physical mailing list. And the reason they do that is because it it works. Like they send out mailers and a whole bunch of people actually will respond and give that way. So what I've done, and I think is really critical is that I put them on a monthly auto um, donation, right? So I have probably five or six charities that I have set up. So every month, you know, the same amount goes out to them and they don't have to harass me, send me mails, call me in December to get me to donate. I'm, I'm there. I'm a steady presence. I'm reliable, which helps them tremendously because it evens out their cash flow. So instead of waiting and like hoping everybody comes through in December, they get that cash all year long, which helps them plan, which helps them execute and not, and not have to spend resources chasing you for that donation. So whatever amount you normally give, you know, maybe you give it this year and then in January, take a 12th of that and put it on autopilot and you'll be, you know, in the same place. You usually don't notice it that way too in your budget. I mean, public radio, which is like my favorite, you know, one of my favorite charities in the world is really great at this, right? In, in Colorado here, they call it evergreen membership. And they're like for $10 a month, you know, we, we appreciate any amount. So I think it's less about how much it's just more about being a steady donor that they don't have to chase and use resources, whether they're physical or or human, to to get you to donate. So that would be sort of my number one suggestion if you want to be environmentally conscious in your your donor behavior. That's a great tip. The tip of just frankly being a steady presence is really encouraging. Is there a trap that you similarly see people falling into on the charity side or when people think they're doing really well, that is not actually as good as that's, that's a scary question, but you have an insider yeah, perspective. I do. I do. I mean, the biggest trap is, you know, I once wrote a blog post that was my most popular, you know, thing ever among charities actually, which was called a good cause is not the same as a good program. 
And by that, I mean, very often, we're actually not that knowledgeable about the nonprofits we're donating to. What we mostly know is the cause. And we know the problem they're trying to solve. So if they're an animal shelter, we know like, oh, I love animals. I'm going to donate to that. Some shelters euthanize animals that, you know, they can't place and others do not. So if you don't know anything more about it than the cause, you could be really not doing what you think you're doing. So that's an obvious one because killing, you know, killing animals. But the same thing is true, actually, for all kinds of charities from workforce development, domestic violence. There were charities back in the, I want to say, late 90s that were supposedly domestic violence. And their approach was to get men who were abusers into like a therapy circle with each other, try to address the issue that way. And what they found was, of course, they reinforced each other and it ended up making everything worse. And well, I could tell you lots of stories, but the point is people saw the cause oh, it's domestic violence prevention and thought, oh, that's great. I believe in that. And we give their money. And, you know, the thing is, if all you know is the cause and not what they're really, really doing, you are at great danger of, you know, at, at best not being as effective as you could be. And at worst, actually working against your values and your objectives. So I sort of encourage people to pick an issue and actually learn enough about it to make an intelligent donation. Frankly, that's rarer than you would think, but the cause is not, <laughs> you, you need to go beyond the cause to what they actually do, what their solution is, go visit it, get to see them in action, because I think you learn a lot. But the other thing is, if you've only ever seen one charity like that, and again, I use, you know, maybe workforce development, if you've only seen one that's training people, you know, to place them into jobs or whatever, you think that's amazing, and they're changing lives. But by the time you've seen 10, or just maybe four, you know, you can really tell this one is above and beyond, like that one's incredible, this one's like average, whatever. But if you've only seen one, you know, then you think it's amazing. And so I sort of, you know, tell people you got to pick an issue and like look for truly a great organization in that issue rather than going by the cause and trusting based on some, some website material or something. But the good news is most organizations would absolutely love to have you come check it out, volunteer, learn more, whatever, to understand a little bit better. That's a really good tip. I've never heard that before. Oh, no. Of- That's really, really good. It's not just about the cause, it's about the program. And that got me thinking about areas in my life where I am, frankly, like regularly solicited for money. And one of them is charities that I may donate to. Um, Again, the regular NPR donation, that's wonderful. But it also got me thinking about alumni organizations and how many people give to alumni organizations. And I think it's a wonderful, really like sentimental gesture for a lot of folks. You had a great time in college and you want to give back to this institution. But we talked earlier about endowments. And I feel like this is a great kind of wraparound to that earlier conversation of huge organizations that may or may not be using your money in a way that aligns with you. So could we talk a little bit about universities and divesting? Yeah. Universities are such a great little Petri dish. (laughs) 
<laughs> because like students and young people are always agitated, like they're always at the front of social change, right? So as I said, you know, the industry of foundations 20 years ago, people started asking questions about what's going on with that endowment, how is that invested? But at a university, you have a much bigger stakeholder group. They have a lots of them have massive endowments, billions of dollars in endowments. If not, even if it's a hundred million dollars, that would be considered a small endowment for a university. But that's a lot of money. And um, and because your students are stakeholders, they have like a real opportunity to agitate. And so what's happened is students have led the way in saying, hey, you're investing that endowment in, again, like fossil fuels or anti kind of environmental industries. And this is our future. And we want you to, you know, align with like where the future is going. And you know what I will say about that is a lot of people talk about ESG investing and, you know, the environmental, social and governance. That's what those three things E, S and G stand for. And it's the idea of screening companies based on how they behave in those areas and directing your investment dollars to ones that score more highly on ESG. And, you know, I think it can be really complicated and there's more and more metrics and more and more like measurement schemes. But fundamentally for me, ESG investing is about having a long-term outlook rather than quarterly driven outlook. Meaning, does anybody think that 20, 30 years from now, fossil fuels is still going to be the like incredibly profitable industry? Like, no. So as they say, skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is today. Just like look ahead to what you think is going to happen in this world. And it is going to be renewable energy, electric vehicles, you know, solar panels, like all of those kinds of technologies are the future. I mean, I don't think anybody would argue it. The question is just how long can you keep bringing those quarterly profits you know, out of fossil fuels. And so you don't have to be, you know, killing yourself with like trying to understand the metric system. I think you have to have the, the long-term view is, is fundamentally what, what drives you to do things like divest because you're like, I'm not playing this for the next five years unless you're 75 and like retired and, you know, you are playing it for the next five years. But for those of us who are looking 30, 40 years down the road for our investments, you know, it absolutely makes sense to say, where is the future? And so these students have pushed their endowments with success and, and you know, Yale, Columbia, like a ton of universities and even Harvard, who'd been holding out for, for many, many more years than everybody else in the last couple of years said, climate change is the greatest threat to our society, to our world. We're divesting from fossil fuels. And so that's usually step one on somebody's impact investing journey. It's about screening out what you don't want to be in, right? And saying, I don't want to be in fossil fuels. You know, other people say, I don't want to be in guns. I don't want to be in gambling. I don't want to be in weapons, right? That's kind of a decision about what you don't want in your portfolio. And then the next step is usually what they say called positive screens, which is saying, these are the things I do want. So you might say, I do want women-friendly companies, companies with like friendly policies or women on their board and like leave for you know, all parents or whatever the case may be. Or you may say, I want clean energy. I want other kind of positive things that you're looking for. And so that's where you start to, I think, find thematic ETFs, ex exchange traded funds. So you can, it's a mutual fund basically, but instead of it being small cap, large cap, blended value, you know, those kinds of categories, the category for these kinds of mutual funds is things like 
women or clean energy or you know other kind of positive screening companies. What I will say about that is the issue can be, and the women one is a great example. One of the things I own personally is the YMCA created a, a mutual fund called Women. W-O-M-N, I think is the is the sticker. Not that this is investment advice. Oh my God. But it is a collection of companies in that that have um, scored very highly on women's issues, as I said, like board membership and, and executives and policies or whatnot. Okay, but what do you think is their top 10 holdings? It includes our friend Amazon. Yeah, I would assume it's just it big companies. It includes ExxonMobil because these, these companies score high on women's issues. But that's why you have to, to know what their philosophy is. Like I think ExxonMobil actually is in many ESG funds because they check all those boxes on a corporate level, like governance boxes. They are investing a lot in renewable energy. So the fact that over here they might be doing fossil fuels is sort of they get an indulgence because they're doing the you know the um, renewable projects over here. And so when you when you go to look for an ESG themed fund, you really have to understand what their priority is because there is no standard definition. Every fund they can market themselves as that's not like a, a term that's defined, you know, by the federal government, there's no regulation about what is ESG. So each fund is defining for itself what their priorities are. Um, and so you really have to look under the hood to see what their holdings are, what their philosophy is to understand um, if it really is a match for your values. That was an excellent Cliff's notes deep dive on <laughs> ESG investing, I have to say. The first time I really was taught anything about ESG investing, it was under this guise that you may be tricked because there are great things that ExxonMobil does and that Shell does and all of these companies that you may not normally be aligned with. Like, I don't even like to buy my gas at BP, but they are probably investing a lot of money in renewable energy work because that's actually where their industry is going. They so, know that's where the puck is going too, right? They know that's where the puck <laughs> is going. Exactly. So the challenge with ESG investing is that, especially in the game of the stock market, just because you're choosing not to buy an Amazon stock or an ExxonMobil stock doesn't necessarily decrease their value. If anything, less of us buying it just makes it more attractive to investors. It's just this game of back and forth of well, who is willing to buy yeah, the stock. This is, a, this is a great point, which is that a lot of people talk about impact investing. I actually differentiate between two very different approaches, okay, in my, in my consulting and like in my personal life, which is when you are doing publicly traded stocks, you are exactly right. Who owns that publicly traded stock and how they feel about it has no bearing whatsoever on the price of the stock and probably on the performance of the company. Actually, except if we all divest and we all sell it, it not only will drive down the price of the stock, but it will, be, it will make it harder for that company to borrow money um, and cause them other kinds of pain. So in some ways, you know, divesting, like if only, you know, 1% of us do something like that, it, it doesn't really have a big impact, but it makes me feel better because I know that I'm in alignment. Like I'm not making money off of the destruction of the planet or whatever. And, and so I call that aligned investing. So you're not changing things, but you are aligning your investments with your values. The other kind of flavor 
is what I call catalytic investment, which is where you really are impacting something. So for example, if you are doing peer-to-peer lending, you know, there's these new platforms where instead of, again, the big bank, like you can directly buy into a bunch of loans to other individuals or small businesses, or now they have crowdfunding for companies, right? Where you could be like an angel investor with a, a, a really small amount of money and choose the individual companies. That's where your, like your dollars make a difference because it's sort of the but for. If you weren't there, it's not necessarily true that someone else would step in and buy it, right? And so where you can... Um, like the, depending on, you know, how much assets you're working with or like what your risk profile is, you know, there's nothing wrong with aligned investing because again, it takes all of us making those decisions to move a market. And really the, the best example of that is divestment with South Africa, right? And during the apartheid era where like many, many institutions divested from those South African countries in protest of apartheid regime and helped force the change because they put so much pressure on the economy um, of the whole country. And, you know, if it was if it was just one person that did that, you know, you wouldn't have a fit. But when you get enough of us together, so, you know, people sometimes say ESG is just virtue signaling or it's just, it's meaningless, but it's like, right, it is signaling. Yes, it's signaling. And it's also putting our money where our mouth is. And it, you do need a movement. You need to recruit people. You need enough of us that sends the, the market the signal that we're going to follow the socially beneficial companies. So it's very real concern of greenwashing, but I think it's still worth sending that signal, even if the system is imperfect. Well, even given the scale, if you get 1% of people to make a significant change in their portfolios, that's a lot of money. 1% is a huge deal to a company. And that's enough for a bank to be able to signal, for a company to be able to signal, our stakeholders aren't happy with whatever it is that we're doing this quarter. There's a reason people are leaving. 1% is a lot of yeah. people in the grand yeah. scheme of things. Well, and one of my favorite um, antidotes too to that long-term or that short-term thinking, which, I, you know, I would argue that like the quarterly kind of demand for, for um, quarterly profits has driven a lot of bad kind of effects of capitalism in this country. But um, there've been a couple of folks that have really tried to establish what they call a long-term stock exchange, which is intending to say, listen, we're still a publicly traded company, but instead of maximizing for quarterly, because you do things, right, when you're trying to goose that quarterly report that you don't do if you're playing the long game. So again, it goes back to me that it's like a lot of impact investing, a lot of aligned investing is is really just having a long-term perspective to guide you instead of maximizing for your short-term pleasure and benefit. Yeah. Wow. Sharon, thank you so much for all of that wisdom. Learning from you has been so great. Do you have any final tips for us? One take home money trap to avoid if we want to stay aligned with our values. You talked about sort of being hit up for donations. And one one way we increasingly see that is like round up for charity or, you know, add a dollar for the, I will just tell you, I never do it. I never do it. And people maybe think that that's cool, but I don't know anything about that organization. I don't know how much is really being donated. I don't know what they're going to do with it. I make proactive decisions about where my charitable dollars go and, you know, don't feel bad at all about, and I also never give to phone solicitors 
because you never even, half the time those companies keep 50% of what they raise, even more. You control your philanthropic donations and your financial life. Don't let anybody bully you into, <laughs> into their choice. You're totally right. The one that gets me is at the grocery store. It took me a long time to not feel guilty about rounding up to the next dollar for whatever organization it was. And then it dawned on me that this is a corporate tax write-off for Harris Teeter or whoever's collecting that money. They're benefiting off of your guilt at the register. Yeah. 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 I don't mess around with that anymore. I can, I can choose where my (laughs) donations go. That's right. That's right. Thanks so much for tuning into our conversation today with Sharon Schneider, author of Handbook for an Integrated Life. Like I mentioned at the top, I thought this was a really incredible value-packed conversation. I hope you really enjoyed it. Handbook for an Integrated Life was released about three weeks ago and covers a whole bunch that we didn't get to in today's conversation. Again, the philosophy around aligning your values, but also tiny actions that you want to align with your values, such as where you work, how you celebrate, the way that you strengthen relationships in your life, how you build your community all around really incredible conversations. I totally recommend this book and I will link it in the show notes if you'd like to check it out further. And I will also link Sharon's information, social profiles there as well. If you've stuck around this long, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're finding this podcast today. Leave a rating, leave a review, send it in your family group chat, tell your friends about it, post it on your Instagram story. I want to hear your thoughts and I look forward to chatting with you next week. Thanks so much for hanging out. Have a really great evening.